Good morning, everybody. Yes, if you, if you want to find Romans 6 in your Bible, that'd be helpful, because I'm going to be kind of dipping into to bits of it as we go along. It will come up on the screen as well, but if you've got your Bible, let's use them. So um, there, was, um, there was a docks worker in the mid-19th century who, whose job it was to um, load, help load cargo onto the ships that were going over to America, over to the New World. And um, he was very poor. He didn't have any money. And he was, frankly, he was just tired. He was tired of this drudgery, of his, this existence. And he had heard all these stories from people about the opportunities that the New World offered for people like him to go there and become wealthy through talent, not, not disadvantaged by birth or social status or standing, that, that anybody could go over there and, and make a success of themselves. So he started to scrape together his savings wherever he possibly could. And... Um, Finally, the day arrived when he could buy a ticket for the ship to America. Um, now, he didn't have any money left over to buy food in the ship's restaurant, so he, he gathered together as much bread as he could find as he started this 10-day voyage to the land of his dreams. Now, even though he rationed the bread, after three days it was gone, and he got hungry. And uh, he, he started going to bed early to try and sleep away the hunger and just get through this. But... He, he couldn't, it, and the, after a few days, the smell of the cooked food from the ship's restaurant was so tormenting that he even went and knocked on the door of the kitchen to beg for, for scraps of leftover food. And the chef was surprised, and he asked to look at the man's ticket, and he said, look at the small print on your ticket. And it turns out that actually the price of the ticket entitled him to three meals a day in the ship's restaurant. So he had been starving in his cabin miserable when he could have been dining up above on really nice food. Now, as we head into this next section of Romans, Paul, the author of Romans, he's told us all about why salvation is needed, why we need to be saved. He's told us how that's been made possible, how it's been given, how we can receive salvation. He's told us all about how we can be sure of that salvation. But now, in this next section that we're in, he's keen to tell us, he's keen to to, to let us know that salvation is also to be experienced It is to be lived. The gospel transforms lives. It's not just the promise of a destination at the end of a hungry and miserable voyage. It's the promise of life starting now. You see, Jesus has not only set you free from the penalty of sin, but he's also set you free from the power of sin. And yet, so many Christians live as if sin still has power over them. As we get into Romans 6, we'll see that is simply not the case. Now, Paul starts by asking a question, um, and it's a question which directly relates to something he said a couple of verses before, at the end of chapter 5, where he said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says this, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, actually, not only is that a response to what he's literally just said, but actually, in one sense, it's a very natural question for Paul's readers to be asking. And Paul's, of course, anticipating the question that might be thrown at him because of everything that he said about the gospel in the first five chapters, that, that salvation is received, it's not achieved, that it's not on the basis of what you do, it's on the basis of what Jesus has done. And so, if it's not about how you live your life, if it's... If it's all about justification by faith, if it's being about saved by faith in what Jesus has done, then do we even need to try to be obedient to God? Do we, 
Why not just live how you want? So in one sense, it is a very natural question to ask, because actually what it shows is that you've understood something of the absolutely shocking and outrageous grace and mercy of God, the extent of his grace and mercy, but equally, unless your behavior answers that question in the right way once you've become a Christian, then you really haven't understood the gospel at all. There's a famous preacher in the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said, actually, you know what, if, unless your preaching of the gospel provokes a question like that, unless your preaching of the gospel makes it seem too good to be true, then you're not really preaching the gospel. But if that is actually how you're thinking, then you really haven't understood the gospel because God's grace and forgiveness are transforming. The fact is the gospel changes us. And Paul answers the question emphatically. He says, by no means. By no means. No way. Other versions of the Bible translate it as God forbid, which wouldn't have been written in the original because of the way they would have used the name of God. But it's God forbid. Um, one, particularly, one, like, one I like particularly is a, a translation of the Bible called, by a very English gentleman called J.B. Phillips. And he translates it as, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> which is very English. But you get the point. It's a strong response. It's, a, it's by no means, no way. If you've actually experienced the gospel, if you've experienced the grace of God, if you've experienced his power and his love and his forgiveness, your response will be never. Go on sinning, never. How can I think like that? Now actually, if you see the grace of God as a license to sin... You know, if you think, it's okay because God will forgive me, that's his job. And so actually what I do doesn't really matter. It really, I can do whatever I want. He'll forgive me anyway. If that's your attitude towards sin and grace, then I've got to tell you, you haven't received the gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus. But some Christians or or people who claim to be Christians can have a very loose attitude towards sin. Some people toy with sin. They're very, with indifference, indifferent to it, complacent about it. Almost like there are two versions of Christianity, one for normal people and a premium version for the really spiritual ones. It's like, well, I don't want that premium version. I just want normal, undemanding Christianity. I want to be able to carry on with life as it is without any challenge. You know, Jesus is just in the background of my life. He's, he's a bolt-on. He's a fallback. Uh, in case things go wrong or those times when I need help. So I'll just sit here hanging on to my born-again certificate, that experience of God I had a few years ago, but otherwise I'll just carry on with life as it is. I'll just carry on doing life just as I want to do it. You know, of course, I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm only human. If you treat sin with indifference... You haven't got it. You haven't got the gospel. And may today be a wake-up call for you. May, it be, may this passage in Romans 6 be a warning, a severe challenge for you, if that's how you think. Because Jesus doesn't offer two versions of Christianity. He doesn't offer a Christianity that is free of challenge, that, that doesn't involve a fight against sin and our selfish desires. It's just not the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the holier a man becomes the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. By no means. Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, we died to sin. Shall we go on sinning? No, because we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? How can we tolerate sin any longer? How can we actively pursue it any longer? If you're a Christian, you died to sin. Now, please note, what it doesn't say there is that sin died. And I think we all know that. I think we're very much aware of that. Sin is still very much alive, but you have died to it. You have died to sin. That means you are no longer under the reign of sin. You are not under the ruling power of sin. Paul uses slavery imagery later in the chapter to describe what our relationship with sin was like. You were a slave to sin. Sin was your master. Before becoming a Christian, sinful desires ruled over you, so much so that you didn't even realize they were sinful, and even if you did, you couldn't resist them. You were completely under the control of sin, like a slave is completely under the control of his master. Now, during times of slavery, say during the British Empire, slaves would dream of that day when they would be free, that day when their master would no longer own them, when their master would have no more control over them, no legal right. But the reality was, for most slaves, the only way that that was going to happen was to die. It was to die. Then your master has no further control over you. He has no rights. He can no longer dictate to you. If you have died to sin, sin can no longer dictate to you. It can no longer dominate you. It has no legal right over you. You now have the power and the ability, and the authority, and the responsibility to resist sin. Because you have changed. There has been a radical change in you. Paul is saying that the change in your relationship to sin is as radical as that change from life to death. That's what he's saying. You are different. You have changed. It's a radical change. Do you know what? You're not just a miserable sinner saved by grace. The Bible calls you a saint. Nowhere does the New Testament call call a Christian a sinner. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You're a righteous one. You've been made into a new creation. You're not just a sinner saved by grace. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? Now, of course, that raises all sorts of questions for us. And I'll come to those questions a bit later. But first, Paul tells us a bit more about how that change happened and the nature of that change. So from verse 3... He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin now if we died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead he cannot die again death no longer has mastery over him the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God now apart from In the first few verses, they're emphasizing the importance of baptism. I mean, Paul absolutely emphasizes here the importance of baptism. You can't miss that. 
I'm not going to talk about that now, I haven't got time, but just to reiterate what Ron said about exploring baptism on the 20th of July. If you want to know more about the role of baptism, and it is important, then please come along on the 20th of July in the second meeting to exploring baptism. But actually, the the main point that I want to pick up from that section I just read is this idea of being united with Christ. You are united with him. I think this is key. It's absolutely key, and we so often misunderstand it. We so often miss this completely. I think that we often picture that transaction that happens when we're born again a little bit like this. Imagine this bowl of sweets is God's righteousness, and and I think we sometimes see it like this, that that God sees you, and he, he says, oh, great, you've put your trust in me, you've put your trust in what my son did on the cross. Here, have my righteousness as a gift for you. Have my righteousness, okay? You too, yeah, you have my, you have my righteousness as a gift. You, you keep hold of that, but actually, don't eat it yet. Don't use it yet, because actually, you've got to produce this on the day of judgment, because this is your ticket in. My righteousness, this is your ticket to heaven. But actually, that's not how the Bible pictures, it, pictures that. Here it says, we are united with him. We're united with him. We are immersed. You are immersed in him. You are immersed in his righteousness. You are joined with his righteousness. You're joined with him. You share in his nature. His past is your past. And you can be certain of being united with him in resurrection. You are joined to him. You are united with him. And you have died to sin with him. How can you live in it any longer? Suppose you were a prostitute. And you heard that the king had issued a decree saying all prostitutes are forgiven. Well, that's great news. That's wonderful news. I'm forgiven. Uh, The police aren't going to come after me anymore. I'm forgiven. Fantastic. And we could see it a bit like this again. Like, here you go. Have my gift. Have my gift of forgiveness. Take that. You're forgiven. It's a gift. But if that's all that the decree said... Would it change how you saw yourself? Well, no, because you're still a prostitute. Would it change your behavior? Well, probably not. But what if the decree said that not only does the king forgive you, not only does he give you this gift of forgiveness, but he also wants you to become his bride. He wants to make you queen. Now, would that change how you see yourself? Of course it would because you've now totally changed identity, status, position. Would it change your behavior? Of course it would. Why would you go back to the old life, your old way of life, now that you're the queen, now that you've been joined with the king, now that you are united with him? Why would you ever go back to the old way of life? You see, if you've been united with Christ, you won't ask that question that comes in verse 1. Because actually you understand that your sin cost Jesus everything. Your sin cost Jesus his life. You understand that you have been bought with the blood of Christ and so that you, you are no longer able to act as if you belong to yourself. Because you don't. You owe him your life and you can no longer live in disregard to his will or to your new nature. You see, if I wasn't a Christian, there would be things that I would be doing that I'm not doing now. And, and to be honest, why wouldn't I? 
Why wouldn't I live my life just as I want if I didn't have God in my life? And I don't say that to make myself sound better than you if you're not a Christian. But what you've got to understand, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, what you've got to understand is that you cannot possibly anticipate how you will feel once you are born again. Because you might be sitting there saying, well, I, I kind of get the message of Christianity and I kind of like it, but would that mean I would have to stop doing this? Would that mean I'd have to give this up? Because I don't think I can do that. I've got to tell you, you cannot possibly anticipate how you will feel about those things once you are born again, once you have been united with Christ. Because when you're united with Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. Because who you are changes. There is a new you. And so when a Christian sins, when a Christian just lives their life out however they want, regardless of what God says, actually they're acting against their nature. They're acting against their identity. So the question is more, why would a Christian sin? You are united with Christ. You've died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? Paul goes on in verse 11. He says, now in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Sin shall not be your master. He says, count yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Not because by considering it, it makes it happen. Look, if I screw up my eyes and I concentrate really hard and I clench my fist, I'm, fist, I'm dead to sin, I'm, it, it makes it happen. No, but you can consider it so because it is so. Because you are dead to sin and you are alive to God. You are united with him. So Paul is saying, let your life show it. Act like it. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin. Offer them to God to be used by him. Don't casually live a life of sin and then say, well, hey, I'm only human. I'm not perfect. Actually, you're not only human. You're a child of God. You're, you're filled with the spirit. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a new creation. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. You're united with Christ, so count yourself dead to sin. Because you are. You are dead to sin, you are alive to God, but you've got to treat yourself like that. You've got to treat yourself as if you're dead to sin. You've got to remind yourself of who you are. Otherwise, you're a bit like that docks worker. You're on the boat, but you're missing out on the fullness of that through lack of knowledge about everything that he's entitled to, living in misery and clinging on desperately for the end of the voyage when actually a feast awaits now. The fact is that in Christ, you lack nothing. In him, you lack nothing. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need. It's given us everything we need for life and godliness. You lack nothing. You already have everything you need. I don't know, maybe you are waiting for God. You're, maybe you just feel stuck and you're waiting for God to do something in your life. You're waiting for him to move. You're waiting for him to, to break something or you're, you're waiting for him to give you some sort of extra strength. But listen, what more can God give you from all the resources of heaven that is better than Jesus? 
What more can he give you? You already have everything you need. He has already given you everything that you need. You have the resources, but you need to use them. You need to deploy them. You you need to remember who you are. Have you forgotten who you are in Christ? St. Augustine was one of the early church fathers, and he was a theologian from the 4th and 5th centuries. And before he became a Christian, he was, to put it mildly, a bit of a sex addict. And after he became a Christian, he's walking along one day, and one of his old mistresses turns up, and this was one that he had been particularly attracted to. And she's, she's trying it on. She's going after him. She's trying to get him back to her place to, you know, to pick up where they left off. And he, as courteously as he can, effectively says to her, look, thanks, but no thanks. And he starts to walk away. And she thinks, he must not have recognized me. And so she calls after him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he turned around and smiled and said, yes, I know, I know. But it is not I. It is not I. He was no longer the same person. In the past, he was a person who needed female affection. He, not, not out of love, but just purely selfish to meet his own needs. But that was his spiritual master. That's what drove him. But now he has a new master. He say, I, I used to be like this, but I'm not anymore. I, mean, I have a new master. Actually, I don't need this anymore. I don't need the same things that I used to. And you can fill in the blank. I used to need this. I used to be like this. I, this is what used to drive me, or maybe it's still a very present thing. Because if you don't worship the true God, then something else is God in your life. Everybody has a God. Everybody lives for something. And it's usually the main way that you have of meeting your very legitimate God-given needs for significance and security and acceptance. That place where you find your sense of value. And actually, all temptation, all of sin boils down to this. Any sin that you can think of, any temptation you can think of, what it boils down to is an attempt to meet your needs for significance or security or acceptance independently from God in something that the world offers. And that could be any number of things. It could be a career, it could be family, it could be achievement, it could be the need for personal independence or the need to have people dependent on you. It could be uh, power and influence or it could be human approval. It could be a political cause or money or romance or sex or, or being physically attractive. It could be any number of things. But if it's where you ultimately get your sense of significance, security, acceptance, if it's ultimately where you get your sense of value then it's a spiritual master. It controls you. It drives you. You've offered yourself up to it because you have to have it to feel good about yourself. So you're a slave to it. If you think of any sin that you get caught up in or any temptation that is particularly strong for you, at its root will be the attempt to meet one of those needs independently of God. But as a Christian, you can say, no, I have a new master. I'm a new person. I don't need that anymore. All my needs are met in Christ. Now, I guess the inevitable question that arises from all this, from everything I've been saying, is why do I sin? Why do I sin? 
Why does it not feel like I'm changing? If sin has no power over me, why does it sometimes feel like it does? Why am I stuck in that particular sin? Why am I stuck in that cycle of sin, guilt, and confess? Sin, guilt, confess. Why am I stuck in that cycle? Because I love Jesus. I believe everything you've been saying. Why does this take so long? Remember, sin did not die. Sin is not dead. Temptation is still very, very real and alive, and we have a very real enemy who wants to drag you down. He doesn't want you living in joy and in assurance of your salvation. He wants to drag you down. He wants to make you miserable. And Paul isn't talking about being in a spiritual state of perfection where where you're no longer bothered by temptation. He's not talking about an experience that is for some great Christians and not for others. He's talking to all Christians here. Tom Wright gives an example from medieval England. He says, imagine you were a serf. Imagine you were a peasant and you live in a small hut, and you eke out your existence by farming this small plot of land that doesn't belong to you. And the lord of the manor can come along at any time and demand his share of the crops. He can demand the rent. He can demand that you help him with any projects he's involved in. Uh, And if if he's going to fight somebody, you go along to fight, because he's your lord and master. He owns you. You, you. You've got to do what he says. Now, imagine that's the situation... And your Lord and Master is a nasty piece of work. He's mean and spiteful and and cruel. And when he turns up, you have to obey. Now that's a bit like what it was like for us before we came to Christ. Our Lord and Master was sin. And sin is a cruel master, a demanding master. But now imagine that another Lord and Master comes along and takes ownership of this land. And as part of that also takes ownership of you. But this is a master who is kind and patient and generous and and just. And he can still expect things of you, but you do those things gladly because you like him and you you like the things that he does. But then one day your old master turns up again. He starts to shout at you and he says, you better start doing what I say again. You need to start following me again. And you might be very intimidated by that because you can still remember the time when he could legally do that. And so you revert back. And you start following him again. You start listening to what he says out of impulse because actually you haven't fully grasped your new situation. But the reality is very different because actually you can, say, you can say to him, I'm dead to you. You no longer have any right over me. And if you keep going on at me, I'm going to call my new master and he's going to come along and he will sort you out. The only reason a Christian doesn't change, why we can get stuck in particular things, is because you don't know who you are. You've forgotten who you are. There are many reasons why that happens. There are many things which come along to cloud our thinking, blind our vision, but you've forgotten who you are. In Isaiah 52, God says to Israel, awake, awake, O Zion, awake, clothe yourself with strength, put on your garments of splendor, shake off your dust, Rise up, sit enthroned, free yourself from the chains on your neck. What's he saying to them? He's saying, know who you are. You're the people of God, you're mine. Know who you are. Rise up, sit enthroned, free yourself. Take your place. We need to constantly remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and the power and the authority that we have in Christ because you are united with him. So why is it so hard? Why is this so hard? 
Well, I think it comes down to the fact that actually we don't fully trust God. We find it very difficult to fully trust God. Do you know sin entered the world through doubting God? Sin entered the world through a lack of trust that God actually provides everything we need. And that if he says no to something, it's because he knows that's, that's best for us. If he says, no, don't eat that, don't do that, it's because actually he knows that's not best for us and he provides everything we need. And ultimately, sin comes down to not trusting him, that he means that, that he actually follows through on that. Do you trust him enough to give him everything? Do you, do you trust him enough to offer yourself fully, fully to him, including that thing that you might need to give up, whatever that might be? And do you trust that he will be faithful to you in that, that he will repay you for your faithfulness, or do you think he's going to abuse you and let you down like all the other masters do, like all the other things you've ever been enslaved to in your life? Let me tell you one last story. There's, there's a film called Three Seasons, and it's set in Vietnam just after the Vietnamese War, and there are these two characters, Hai and Lan. And Hai is a rickshaw driver, and he's very poor, has no money. And he loves Lan. He's in love with her, but Lan is a prostitute. And both these characters have unfulfilled desires. Hai can't afford Lan. But Lan hates her life as a prostitute. And as a prostitute, she's trying to sleep her way out of this poverty and degradation. She longs to have that clean, elegant life of those people who live in the fancy hotels where she goes on business, but she's never allowed to stay overnight. She dreams of living in that world. But actually, the more she's involved in prostitution, the more she becomes enslaved by it. Now, Hai enters a race. And to his surprise, he wins he wins the prize, and suddenly he's got a load of money in his hands that could radically change his life forever. But he uses the money for one thing, just one thing. He books a room in this elegant hotel for one night, and he pays Lan's fee, and he says, I want to see you in that room tonight. And of course, the viewers are expecting a steamy sex scene coming up, and Lan is expecting that too. But to everyone's surprise, they get there, they get to the room, and he says, I don't want to have sex with you. What he's done is he's purchased her a place in the world she dreams of joining, and the only thing that he asks is to watch her fall asleep in it. And slowly and gently, she falls asleep, and he's gone by morning, having demanded nothing. But something changes in Lan. You see, she finds that she can't go back to prostitution. She can't go back to that old way of life because for the first time in her life, she has encountered someone who used their power to serve her and not to use her and not to abuse her. She's a new person. Her dignity is restored. She is changed by the transforming grace of selfless love. Jesus had all the power in the world. He had all the power. And he saw us trapped in the things that we thought were bringing us freedom, but actually the things that were enslaving us. And so he gave up everything. He made himself nothing. He became a servant. He laid aside his majesty, his, his indescribable, infinitely awesome, glorious majesty. He laid that aside and purchased not at the cost of money, but at the cost of his very life, he purchased for us a room in the only place where our hearts can truly be at rest, 
in his father's house. And this wasn't just for one night, this was for eternity. He denied himself to love us. He used his power to serve us. And if Lan was transformed by high selfless love, how much more will we be transformed by the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ and be able to say to all the other spiritual masters, along with Augustine, that's not me anymore. That is not who I am anymore. Why wouldn't you offer yourself fully to the only master in the universe who's offered himself for you, who really genuinely loves you? Trust him. Trust him. Give yourself to him. If you give yourself to anything else, you know, if you give yourself to your career, your career won't offer itself for you. Your career is not going to die for you. If anything, if you don't fulfill all of its requirements, it will punish you your whole life. Give yourself to him. Give yourself to the one master who became a servant for you. If you're struggling with sin, if you are beset by temptation, if you've been feeling defeated and demoralized, I pray that this would be an encouragement to you. Let this be a strength to you. Take this as a promise from God. Sin shall not be your master. Sin shall not be your master. I don't know what your last week has been like, but I know that next week can be better. Sin shall not be your master. You are forgiven. As Jenny said this morning, actually, once you start focusing on the truth, those chains, they, they fall off. Freedom is possible. It may not feel like it right now, but freedom is possible. Sin shall not be your master. Don't settle for a second best Christianity. Don't be like that docks worker who is there starving and desperate when actually he had access to the best food. You have everything you need for life and godliness. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Know who you are. You are united with Christ. You are dead to sin. You are alive to him. Sin shall not be your master. Amen.